Hello everyone and welcome to episode 15 of Intermediate English with me, Benjamin. This week on Intermediate English, we've decided to explore a literary theme for the first time. And we thought that there would be no better place to start than with the writer often considered to be the most important British writer, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare plays a really important role in literature and in the culture of the United Kingdom and also of the whole of the English-speaking world. In order to find out more about Shakespeare and to discuss Shakespeare's work and how we think about Shakespeare today, I called up my friend Alex. Alex has, in his time, directed plays, he's been in Shakespeare plays, uh, and most importantly, he spent three years of his life studying English literature. And we know each other from school and from university as well. I couldn't really think of anyone better to give his perspectives on Shakespeare. So I hope you enjoy the interview. We thought that the best way to start off would be with a few lines of Shakespeare. Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes spout till you have drenched our steeples, drown the cocks. You sulfurous and thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers to oak-cleaving thunderbolts, singe my white head, and now all shaking thunder, smite flat the thick rotundity of the world. Crack nature's moulds, and Germans spill at once, that make ingrateful man. Fantastic. So, if I'm right, that's from King Lear? That's right. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about King Lear? Sure. Um, so King Lear is one of Shakespeare's most famous plays um, and uh, is one of his tragedies, which are often the ones that people think of most when they think of Shakespeare. They're often the most praised, the most performed. Um, and King Lear really tells the story of uh, this old king um, who is thinking forward. He's looking to life uh, and reign beyond his own. With his, he has three daughters to consider, and how will he split the kingdom? He plays a funny game with them, um, which ultimately results in his one faithful daughter uh, being cast out in a rage by this old man, and his two unfaithful daughters flattering him into dividing the kingdom between them. This doesn't go well, and it ends up with him out on the heath in the wild, and that's where this um, speech you've just had uh, comes and he's howling into the storm in this kind of famous scene where he's in some sense madder than he's ever been he's, he's gripped by madness in the other sense he's starting to see things more clearly than he has before when he was deceived by his unfaithful daughters and couldn't see the faithfulness of um cordelia his uh, one faithful child um so it's a very dramatic point in a very uh, dramatic play and i guess shows some of um yeah shakespeare's uh Perhaps his ability to, to see two things at once. And that's maybe something that we could come back to when you said that he he seems to be madder than he's ever been before, but also saner in some ways. Shall we backtrack a bit and try and talk a little bit about who Shakespeare is? Because this is the first podcast that I've done, which is um, based on a really literary theme. So... Why are we talking about Shakespeare and why should we talk about Shakespeare? <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, because there are kind of, in some senses, yeah, different answers to those two questions. Why are we talking about Shakespeare? Um, part of the answer to that is that everybody talks about Shakespeare. So Shakespeare has this uh, foundational or central place uh, amongst uh, English writers. Um and is very well known and very widely performed and is often seen as the kind of uh, the epitome, the kind of best, the top uh, example of using the English language. Um, you might even use the phrase, oh, well, it's not Shakespeare, but it's okay as a way of describing something you were writing. Um, so he's, he's big and he's famous um, and everything's kind of measured back against him. 
So there's a sense in which you have to talk about Shakespeare if you're talking about English. And one thing that we talked about um, when we were planning this podcast is the fact that in the English language, we put Shakespeare in a central place, like you say, that I think not a lot of other languages and cultures, they don't necessarily do that in the same way. So, for example, in France, there are about two or three different writers who are considered to be sort of national writers. And I don't know enough other literary cultures to give you more parallels, but I know that Shakespeare is sort of on his own level in English. And I think maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit later. But I think maybe we could start by talking about the role that Shakespeare plays in today's society. There are so many films of Shakespeare plays and Shakespeare plays a big role in British culture and British tourism. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah, of course. So um, like you say, that Shakespeare's plays are constantly being performed. Uh, he's the one playwright almost any city you go to in the UK, you could find um, someone performing something of Shakespeare. And um, often new films coming out, particularly for actors. So obviously um, there were a large amount of uh, British and English actors in Hollywood in very famous films. And lots of those famous actors uh, have kind of trained or at least kind of demonstrated that they can perform Shakespeare. It's often a kind of gateway to say, oh, is this person good? Well, have you seen them in Othello or Hamlet um, or Much Ado About Nothing? Different Shakespeare plays that you say, oh, no, I, we know that they're not just a Hollywood actor. It's not just kind of fame and, and flash. There is actually substance behind them because they've done Shakespeare. It's often seen as, as that uh, badge of honour uh, for actors. But like I said, it's also big in terms of tourism. If you were to visit London, um, you'd definitely be directed towards the Globe Theatre, this kind of recreation of what a theatre would have looked like in Shakespeare's time. Uh, You could go to Stratford-upon-Avon and see um, lots of things about Shakespeare. Because that's where he was born and where he lived until he moved to London, right? Exactly. So yeah, there's lots of things there. Um, And then, I mean... Yeah, you will see his face, or at least we have a, We have this one kind of engraving of what we think his face was like, and you'll see that on lots of uh, tourist uh, kind of merchandise in different shops. People will try and sell you fridge magnets and posters with um, that face on. But also, as well as it being very kind of obvious in the culture, it's also very much um, pushed through inside the education system. Um, so one of the reasons why you'll see all, all these actors and everyone kind of coming through thinking of Shakespeare, talking about Shakespeare, um, is that everyone has to study it pretty much. Um, You'd struggle to get through the secondary school um, system in in England, at least, uh, without having studied Shakespeare. So in other words, when you're 16, you you basically have to uh, do your GCSEs, the exams that people take in England. you have to study a Shakespeare play for your GCSEs. And if you continue to study English after that, you there's a very good chance that you'll end up studying more Shakespeare. And if you decided to study English at university like you did, Alex, then you're going to study Shakespeare a lot, right? Yeah, and you can't, you can't get away from him within the education system. And what you said about the GCSEs is important because um, for many, many jobs in the UK, or at least in England, you have to show that you have passed your maths and your English GCSE. And that's a that's a kind of real bottom line thing that many employers will say, no, you have to have passed your secondary school exams in maths and English. And that means you have to basically pass your Shakespeare um, in order to get those jobs. Um, so even jobs where, you know, that have nothing to do with literature or plays or history, the person who's applying for that job will have had to have done well enough in their Shakespeare exam effectively to pass their English GCSE, um, which is a very yeah funny way of looking at things. Yeah. Okay. So that's a bit about Shakespeare's role in our society. Um, should we try and break down Shakespeare a bit in terms of what he wrote? Is there any way to kind of categorize the different plays? Sure. So people, um, will often divide his plays into tragedies, which, as I said, are probably the most 
famous ones, so Hamlet uh, and Macbeth and plays like that um, that are very well known. There are also then his comedies, um, which some of which uh, might be recognisable as comedies. They're quite funny plays, quite lighthearted. But some of his comedies are very serious and quite dark, um, but are distinguished and they have this kind of comic or ending that we, we everything resolves well, unlike the tragedies where things go horrendously badly to very bad and worse. Um, and then there is history plays, which are probably uh, some of his less performed plays. Um, they're plays that tell the history of uh, England through different kings, um, coming quite close to Shakespeare's own time. Um, they're popular when Shakespeare wrote them, but are probably now less well thought of. And particularly if you were going to say, why is Shakespeare great? Very few people would say because of his histories now. They might have said that then. They wouldn't say that now. Then he has some plays which are maybe harder to place. Um, we might call them tragic comedies um, that seem to slightly uh, go across the tragedies and the comedies. Um, and those can be quite interesting to study. Um, you don't quite know what you're expecting. As well as being a playwright, though, he was also a poet. His sonnets are very famous and are very beautiful. And some people would say that's... Um, uh, the kind of best example of Shakespeare's writing is in his sonnets. Um, but yeah, so one of the reasons I think Shakespeare does stand out is that he has this great breadth of work um, and kind of high volumes of it. And I think the, I think, again, we, we can come on to the history a bit, but the sense that the people at the time knew that he was excellent and kept um, probably a much more careful record of his plays and particularly in terms of printing his plays than other people had. And I think that's part of what, yeah, allows us to view him more clearly today is we've got this quite preserved set, a fulsome set and a full range uh, of the sorts of things that Shakespeare did. Fantastic. And I think one thing that probably is worth mentioning is that you mentioned that he's a poet but actually his plays are often written in verse, in other words, in a sort of poetry form, if we can say that. So although they're not all uh, written like that, and they're all a mix of poetry and prose, in other words, the way that we speak when we're not speaking in poetry, um, I think that's true, they're all a mix. Um, I, the a large chunk of the plays is often written in poetry, especially when it's a more noble character or a king or someone sort of of higher status speaking. Yeah, that's right. And I think, again, like you say, if we think of why is Shakespeare so great, the sorts of things that you would hear quoted, and we've already quoted one bit of verse, we might read some more later, um, would be that kind of poetic side. There's some examples of, um, particularly maybe in the comedy, some examples of dialogue that's very witty that people would also point to um, and kind of clever jokes and puns that Shakespeare does very well. But probably most of all, people would look to that kind of verse and that poetry within the plays um, as an example of why he's so great. Um, and I think that partly contributes to him being quite hard to understand I think even for many kind of native English speakers, um, particularly if they only hear it said and can't be reading it, it can be quite difficult to follow. Um, but it is very beautiful. And I do think that's one of the reasons why he's uh, so well remembered now. Um, I mean, English was a language probably that wasn't considered beautiful and was a bit kind of caught between other languages. Uh, it wasn't the language um, of court. Uh, or of the church, um, and it was probably a little bit kind of second class in that sense. And so I think when Shakespeare manages to make English beautiful, uh, it was very striking to people and people were very proud of that. Um, and I think there is something true uh, in thinking about the way that Shakespeare uses the English language. So he, you can't write poetry in English uh, like you could in French or in Latin. Um, you have less control over um, your placement of words. 
So if because in French and in Latin and other languages, you can define in one word very clearly how many and of what gender and how the, a particular kind of object or person is, and then also how they're relating to other words in your sentence. English doesn't give you that clarity. So you're stuck by putting words next to each other to show what their meaning is. That can feel very constrained. But Shakespeare manages, even within some of that constraint, um, to draw out this kind of beautiful and free-flowing language um, that just seems, has this kind of careful rhythm. It's quite hard to describe why it's beautiful, but it definitely, <laughs> it definitely works. Um, and in some of his plays, you'll see him still relying on rhyme, which I guess is what um, other, some other English authors would see. And you'd see it, 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 you know, touch in his sonnets, but not as much. Um, but generally, he, he vies away from rhyme. And uh, it's all then about that sense of rhythm and of sound, um, which is, I, yeah, as I said, is partly why it's hard to describe. And it almost needs to be performed or said and kind of experienced um, rather than just seen on the page. Okay, so I think we're going to talk in a minute about um, Shakespeare and his times and the context of Shakespeare. But could we just say one last thing about Shakespeare today? Are there aspects of Shakespeare, perhaps words or phrases, that are well known amongst British people today? Yes, there are lots. And, and sometimes you have to be slightly careful with these because um as i said those big tourist attractions in the uk will claim that shakespeare's invented almost every phrase in the english language but there are at least some so here are some that you may hear as you you kind of listen to english you'll hear people talk about star-crossed lovers that's a way of describing people that are in love that was a, a shakespeare original phrase or a wild goose chase that's when you're on a kind of pointless or never-ending task shakespeare the green-eyed monster is a way of describing jealousy or envy. Um, so that idea of jealousy having green eyes, Shakespeare seems to have started. Or even the phrase, it's Greek to me, um, which is a, a funny way for English people to say they don't understand something. They'll say it's like Greek. So I don't know what that says about Greek. But um, but there are loads of these phrases. There's just some examples. There are loads and loads of uh, words and phrases which are very commonly used. Um, and just kind of part of the fabric of English that originated with Shakespeare. So it, it's very interesting because, yeah, like I say, sometimes Shakespeare is used um, as an example of something that's too hard to understand. People would look at Shakespeare, a native English speaker would look at Shakespeare and think, I don't understand these words, I don't understand the meaning. But at the same time, Shakespeare's kind of infiltrated and come into kind of absolute everyday speech in ways that people haven't realised. And I guess, that, again, that shows he's both very accessible, but then also it does take some work, particularly um, understanding the references he's trying to make, I think can be difficult. Okay, so maybe we can talk a little bit about Shakespeare, his life and when he lived. I think I might have referred to Shakespeare in my first podcast that I did, but um, maybe we can just do a little recap and talk about when he was alive, because it was a pretty turbulent time and it was a period that was coming after a, a period of civil war about a hundred years before his life, but it was a period which continued to, to haunt and to, to color and to affect the, the times that Shakespeare lived through. Mm, that's right. So Shakespeare's around end of the 16th, start of the 17th century. So late 1500s and early 1600s. Exactly. So yeah, late 1500s, early 1600s. And so he straddles the end of what we'd call the Tudor period and into the Stuart period. So those are two different um, royal families in England and Stuarts were also the royal family in Scotland. Um, so like you say, Ben, so before the Tudor period, so before that royal family had come in, um, there'd been this long period of civil war called the War of the Roses. And that had been a disaster uh, for England and also for the whole of the UK. Um, the War of the Roses came uh, kind of near the end or at the end of the Hundred Years' War with France, a war which sometimes England was winning, sometimes France was winning. But as the War of the Roses came in, that really was the kind of death knell. That was the end. The England had lost that war. They were out. 
and were totally consumed with uh, kind of destroying and fighting each other. That period went on and on, different kings coming in, going out, coming in, and finally ended um, with this king, Henry Tudor, or Henry VII. He then is in charge for a long period, and then passes on the, the kingship to his son, Henry VIII, who's probably the most um, famous king, um, I would say, uh, in English history. Again, you'll see his picture all around, and everyone talks about his many wives. Um, and then Henry VIII is king for a long period as well. But then after Henry VIII, we have another period of kind of uncertainty. So his son, Edward, is very young and is very Protestant and wants to affirm the break with the Roman Catholic Church that his father started. Then after Edward dies very quickly, you have his daughter Mary, who is the opposite. She's very Catholic and wants to bring the Catholic religion back to England. And then Mary dies and you have Elizabeth, her sister. And at this point, we have a queen, not a king, which is still quite uh, abnormal at that time. And we have a queen who's not married and has no um, prospect of producing children of her own. She has no brother, she has no sister. And so I think you see England in this kind of uncertain time, having gone through a period of great instability, then stability, and then again, teetering, kind of looking perhaps on the edge of another period of civil war or of uncertainty. But then in that time, there's a sense that England tries to start to assert itself again and says, no, we're not going to fall into that uncertainty and mess. We're going to have um, a new kind of national identity. So Elizabeth affirms again the break with the Roman Catholic Church and a kind of distinct English church um, and sets herself against Spain and some of the other Catholic powers uh, within Europe. And I guess in that sense of kind of asserting your identity, Shakespeare starts writing and Shakespeare is um, known to the court and to the queen. And these are plays which uh, royal figures would go to and enjoy. And Shakespeare starts telling the history of this period of instability in his history plays and trying to affirm people say, let's not go back to this mess. Let's stick with this um, kind of new royal line. But obviously, like I say, that's, that doesn't, that new royal family doesn't last beyond Elizabeth. She has no children, she has no brothers, no sisters. And so her distant relatives, the Stuarts, come in and the Stuarts were already the, the kings of Scotland. And then they become at the same time, the kings of England. And again, you have this moment where you could have chaos and you could have uncertainty. And there's a great push to try and say, no, we're not going to go back into civil war. We're going to hold it together. And the baton of um, uh, rule and, and kingship is going to pass from the Tudors to the Stuarts safely. And, and Shakespeare kind of bridges the gap between the two and is well known and famous at the end of the Elizabethan period and the start of the Stuart period. Um, so you can see in him this desire to assert something that's uniquely English and something that is... Um, stable something that we can look to and say no, no, no it's okay we know who we are and we're not going to go back into that chaos um which i think is then very interesting as we we've been saying how shakespeare then becomes this uh symbol of englishness and like what is it what what is what is the english language what is what is good about england what is good about the english and shakespeare would come up very quickly um and i think that also reflects some of what was going on in his own time Look, Shakespeare writes plays that are challenging, that kind of question certain norms and kind of tease things. But also, I think there is a yeah a real sense that Shakespeare is kind of shoring up the English cultural identity at a time when it felt a little bit in threat again, but ultimately kind of held together. Fantastic. So just to recap, this is a pretty long period of instability and the Tudor period has all of these different changes of monarchy. And you're saying that in some ways Shakespeare is trying to deal with the past, deal with all of this instability that's happened in England before, but also uh, try to make this link once this new royal family comes in, the Stuarts, try and link them with this past as well and try and understand them. Like one example might be, uh, you know, the new Stuart King who comes in, who's James I. He's very interested in witchcraft, right, and uh, and witches. And so Shakespeare writes Macbeth, which opens with a scene with witches. It's also, of course, set in Scotland, which is where James is from. So do you think maybe Shakespeare is is, is really 
sort of responding to the events that are going on around him and integrating those into his plays. Oh, certainly. And to take Macbeth as an example, um, if you look carefully enough in the text, you'll see that James the first ancestor is nominated as the kind of future king. And that this is, is ahistorical at the time. That wasn't obvious to anyone. He, he wasn't next in line for the throne. Um, but uh, Shakespeare works it into the play as a kind of prophecy that it was inevitable that the Stuart line, who are now kings in Scotland and England, were going to come to the throne. So he certainly is responding to what's going on. And you'll see that, uh, I guess, perhaps, as I said, most clearly within his history plays. Um, so he's describing a civil war, but he's also definitely trying to favour um, the winners. And uh, you'll see if you read through the characters associated with the losing side of the civil war come across as being very shallow, very stupid or downright evil. Um, and then some of the characters on the right side of the civil war, you'll see them kind of as the history plays go on, come out in the right. Um, and and you'll see, it'd be very obvious that they, they're the good guys um, and who want that to be known. But it's also contentious. I mean, he is obviously writing about um, different kings and queens, some of whom are good, some of whom are foolish. Um, and as I said, writing about that within a court context, so with royal um, eyes watching, has to be quite careful with how he portrays different people. And certainly, if you wanted to see it, you could see criticisms of Elizabeth or of James within his plays. Um, but always, or, you know, with at least some kind of guard on and some kind of cover story. And perhaps that's why when you move away from the history plays, um, which describe very um, like factual, well, are based on factual events, Shakespeare sometimes, but almost always avoids being set in England. So he, most of his plays are set in parts of Italy or France, and they're not really showing French or Italian culture or French or Italian people but it's part of a kind of way of distancing what he's saying from what's going on in England and perhaps giving him a freer hand um, to criticise things or to kind of play with things that would be scandalous if it was set in England or had English characters. So um, you talked about some of the plays that come under the category of history plays. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you'd like to read a little excerpt from one of them. Sure. So the little bit I'm going to read out is from Henry V, uh, which is perhaps the best known of the history plays. Um, so the two history plays you might hear from are Henry V or Richard III. Um, the very different plays. Henry V is a story of this heroic king. Um, so it particularly tells the story of the Battle of Agincourt. So this kind of great victorious moment uh, for England in uh, the uh, Hundred Years' War and something that England wanted to kind of look back to and say, no, 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 we can be a, a great nation. Watch this play about Henry V. Um, so let me read you this speech. This comes near the end of the play um, as they're about to go into that climactic battle. This story shall the good man teach his son and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Uh, I'll talk a bit about this and maybe um, we can read up some more examples. I think probably the best way as I said earlier, to appreciate the beauty of Shakespeare is hearing it read. Um, I think when you try and read it, maybe it's it's harder to, to, to kind of feel or taste um, why it's so good. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I think, I guess it, it's as I've said, the sense of uh, rhythm, I think, is particularly important to Shakespeare um, and not maybe not the kind of rhythm you might see uh, or might try and follow in more classical poetry. So if you're looking at, um, say, Latin poetry and um, the kind of clarity of diff the length of different syllables and how the kind of expected patterns of rhythm, it's not really like that. It's, it's not that he's um, following particular patterns or having very clear um, 
the delineations of the rhythm. I think it's partly again reflects the English language doesn't give you that tool in the same way um, that you can't say, oh, that's long or that's short or that's stressed or unstressed. Um, and perhaps that's partly why we think of the performance of Shakespeare as such an important art for actors and actresses, that how the word is beautiful, but how can you draw that out as the actor or the speaker? Um, how can you kind of find, uh, as it were, the kind of gold that's buried within the Shakespeare that maybe isn't obvious if you just read it on the page? You have to hear it and hear the noises. Um, I think sound is another very important thing, again, for Shakespeare. So can you hear the uh, alliteration? Um, can you hear the repetition of certain kind of sounds or, or syllables, how they kind of um, emphasise the points that he's trying to make and really land with you? Shall I read a bit more? Let me read some King Lear to you and, and maybe you'll, you'll hear some of what I'm saying. If I'm doing my job right, you can tell me whether I should be in Hollywood or not. So I don't know. Um, so this uh, next uh, little thing I'm going to read is from uh, King Lear again, uh, but this time it's Cordelia. So it's the faithful daughter um, describing her father who she's taken in out of the storm. This is what she says. Had you not been their father, these white flakes had challenged pity of them. Was this a face to be opposed against the warring winds, to stand against the deep dread bolted thunder? In the most terrible and nimble stroke of quick cross lightning, to watch poor Perdue with this thin helm? My enemy's dog, though he had bit me, should have stood that night against my fire. And wast thou fain, poor father, to hovel thee with swine and rogues forlorn in short and musty straw? Alack, alack! Tis wonder that thy life and wits at once had not concluded all. He wakes. Speak to him. Thank you, Alex. Could you um, just point us to uh, a couple of moments in that passage where you think that the language is particularly interesting or beautiful? I noticed there's there is some alliteration, like you mentioned, which is this feature where you repeat certain sounds and there's a bit of repetition as well. Could you draw our attention to the parts that you might want to talk about? Sure. So uh, you might have recognised this uh, in the speech I gave earlier as well uh, from King Lear. Um, when we, when Shakespeare is writing about the storm, so the storm that King Lear has been in, you'll hear there that sense of alliteration and of pace. And um, so it's kind of moving quickly and loudly and these kind of strong, powerful sounds that seem to almost recreate the storm that he's describing. So when he talks about the warring winds and the deep dread bolted thunder and the most terrible and nimble stroke of quick cross lightning, you can feel as you read them, your voice wants to speed up and wants to land into those kind of strong consonant sounds and seems to kind of repeat the, the kind of booming thunder or that sense of danger um, that you have in the storm. So as Cordelia, this kind of very gentle and faithful character, starts describing the storm in this way, you can feel almost what it was like for her father to be there. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good example of how he uh, kind of uses the language on very, I mean, we haven't described <coughs> really yet uh, the performance of Shakespeare. Um, but normally these days you might see uh, more elaborate or interesting sets of Shakespeare or films where they show it in a very dramatic way. Shakespeare was as it was originally performed um, and as the kind of purist would want to perform it today, it was performed very simply on very simple staging um, and uh, without the kind of dramatic effects you might see on the stage today. So when Shakespeare's using language like this, he's also trying to kind of use the imagination of the audience to imagine a storm. There was no storm on the stage. There was no uh, thunder or, or rain. Um, but by using language in this way, he's kind of harnessing the imagination of the listener um, to picture what the storm would have been like and make us feel both like we're in the storm and then also the sense of pity for King Lear for having been there. So I think one thing that's really interesting that you've picked up there is to do with the sound and the fact that a lot of these techniques that he uses are about sound. And I think that shows us that even if you don't understand every word of what's being said, there's still a lot that you can enjoy just in the sound of the delivery, uh, the sound of the words. And I think it's worth saying that actually in modern day 2020, 
most people don't understand every word of Shakespeare. And in fact, I'd say most people understand between sort of 80 to 90 percent. And I'm talking about people who are born in um, English speaking countries. They've passed their GCSE. Exactly. They've they've learned enough to pass the GCSE, but they don't necessarily understand every word that they hear. And um, even people who've studied it a lot often have to check words and see what they mean. And that's just, um, I guess, a result of the fact that Shakespeare was writing 500 years ago, 400, 500 years ago. That's certainly true. But I think it's, um, and I think you're right, it is worth saying that trying to understand every last word um, would probably ruin your experience of Shakespeare. And I think even, uh, like you say, so even people who have been very well educated in Shakespeare and studied lots of literature, if they went to watch a play, they would not follow every word or every line. Like it, it would, some lines would pass over them. Um, and I think, yes, I think it's right to say, to try and experience Shakespeare rather than try to get exactly what he means at each point. And as I said earlier, in terms of, for example, studying the rhythm or the meaning of Shakespeare, again, you can try and drill down and understand everything, but it's not that sort of precise or technical in the way that you might find um, other languages enable you to do. Um, it's not that tightly held together. It kind of just flows out. I mean, I guess the other thing to say in terms of, uh, I think you're right that part of the reason we don't follow it so well is because language has changed in the last several hundred years. Uh, but also it is true of Shakespeare that it's very dense. There's a lot of references, a lot of meaning packed into each line. And I think maybe it's, again, one of the things that is uniquely Shakespearean, or at least something that he does very well, is to combine that very dense, uh, full of meaning language and lots of references to maybe classical myths um, or to other things, but combine all that depth of references and meaning with that sense of free flowing and experience. So even if you don't, like you say, you might not understand exactly what he's referring to, but there's a weight to his language that you feel as it comes through. Um, and I think that's maybe what Shakespeare does give you both, that you could understand it a little bit and experience it and still enjoy it. But also if you wanted to study it, there's loads to get into and to understand more. And you could hear it performed five, six times and start to hear more and more each time. I've got a um, provocative question for you. Um, Shakespeare wrote a, a huge amount in his lifetime. Is it all good? <laughs> it's a good question. And I think the honest answer has to be no. So it's quite difficult within... Uh, perhaps within English culture, or particularly within um, the study of English literature, um, to criticise Shakespeare because of that central role that we've been talking about all this time. However, the reality is that when people think of what is good about Shakespeare, they're often referring to a relatively narrow range within his repertoire and the different plays that he wrote. And there are certainly some plays which are very rarely performed and are seem to have less of that beautiful language or have less of that kind of depth of meaning that I was talking about or which have um, in some cases have kind of plots or characters that we find quite distasteful today and don't enjoy performing and seem to have kind of conclusions that we might not agree with. But certainly, so certain plays, so uh, one example of a play that I think is not so good from Shakespeare is a play called Troilus and Cressida, which is not very well known and rarely performed. And I think that's probably because it's not so good. Um, and it's a play set within the Trojan War, so within lots of classical um, characters, characters from the Iliad or the Odyssey that people might recognise from Greek myths. But um, the play is a bit stop-start. The plot is not very clear. The characters aren't that interesting. The language isn't as beautiful. Now, it probably shows how important Shakespeare is to the English, that people will still try to defend plays like Troilus and Cressida, and they'll say, ah, yes, but you need to understand that Troilus and Cressida is a criticism of the court. And that's why the play isn't very good, because Shakespeare thinks that the court isn't very good. 
and that, it gets very convoluted. People trying to say, ah, oh, no, but he's trying to make a point about how rubbish things are by writing a play that wasn't very good. And I, I just can't quite believe that. That seems very, very odd to me. Um, so certainly there are some plays which just stand out as being not very well thought of and, and often not performed and kind of quickly, quietly forgotten by people who want to say that Shakespeare is very good. So that's one thing maybe where he's not so good. Sometimes it is... So another example that people will talk about is how Shakespeare's clowns are not very funny. So Shakespeare in lots of his comedy plays and will have a clown character. Sometimes they're simply called the clown or they have another name, but it's a type of character that you would expect to be funny, to be um, maybe quite harsh of the other characters and quite comic in how they deliver their language and how they interact with the audience. But often the words that they're given are not very funny. And you're kind of looking at this text, perhaps as an actor getting ready to perform, and you're thinking, where, where are the jokes here? How is this going to make anybody laugh? Um, and a good number of Shakespeare's clowns are famously not very funny, uh, or you have to try very hard to make them funny. Um, let me, I'll, I'll read you an example. Um, this is um, from the clown called Dogsbury. Um, who's in the play Much Ado About Nothing. So it's a comedy play. Um, he is a guardsman. That's his role as well as a clown. This is what he says. Ah, good old man, sir. He will be talking, as they say, when the age is in, the wit is out. God help us. It is a world to see. Well said, if faith, neighbour verges well. God's a good man, and two men ride over horse. One must ride behind. An honest soul, if faith, sir, by my troth he is, as ever broke bread. But God is to be worshipped. All men are not alike. Alas, good neighbour. Yeah, so if there were some jokes in there, I think they probably fell a little bit flat for me and probably some of our listeners. So could you maybe explain what some of the jokes are supposed to be, uh, if that's possible, um, and maybe why uh, it doesn't seem to, to make us laugh in 500 years after it was written? <laughs> yes. Well, I think some of it is, again, what we've said about Shakespeare being performed. So if you went and saw the play Much Ado About Nothing, it may well be that you find the character of Dogsbury funny, but it has to be within the acting. So an actor has to work quite hard with these clowns. And often uh, it's about showing their kind of silliness or uh, in a very exaggerated um, portrayal on the stage. They'll kind of fall over or trip over their words or kind of make funny or rude gestures. That's quite common. Perhaps they'll try and interact with the audience, catch your eye at a funny moment. Um, so I think particularly to, from the bit I, I just read out, it's hard to say, well, what at what point were you meant to laugh? What's the punchline of the joke? Um, and I think the way you would make the speech funnier or, or how you would try and draw out the clownishness of Dogsbury will be much more in how he interacts with the other characters. He's a particularly um, scatterbrained character. So the, if you saw the text in front of you, you would see how it kind of jumps from here to there, short sentences, short phrases. And I think the way you would try and draw out the humour uh, would be to kind of bounce between those different phrases and almost exaggerate the um, lack of sense. Like it doesn't really make sense. It's not really going anywhere. And I think if you act it, you can try and make some jokes out of it. But particularly if someone's reading Shakespeare, it's not that funny. And if, if it's performed by an actor who isn't very skilled, lots of these clowns or comic characters fall quite flat. Um, and uh, probably the bits that are the most confusing if someone doesn't really know Shakespeare very well. So I think, what, who's this character? What's he for? I don't understand. It's probably someone trying to be funny um, and probably isn't landing as well as we thought. So I think that um, I, I think that we, we probably shouldn't spend too much time talking about the sort of negative side of Shakespeare because I thought we don't want to put people off from engaging in it and reading in it. But the, everything you've said, I completely agree with. I just wanted to um, ask you about uh, the role of Shakespeare today and the way that people uh, think about Shakespeare. Um, and the question is, you know, what value does Shakespeare have? If you can point to Shakespeare and say, um, this supports what I believe in, um, 
this connects with my views, this connects with my opinions. Do you think that has value today? Definitely. And I think it's something you can actually see um, almost since Shakespeare stopped writing, people have been adapting or trying to understand what he means in different ways. So it was quite the fashion for a while to even change some of Shakespeare's plays, so particularly his tragedies. Uh, when people adapted them or put them on stage, they would change the ending. Too often in the tragedies, people thought the bad guys sort of get away with it and the good guys all end up dead or suffering. So some people would say, no, this isn't, this is immoral, this is wrong. And Shakespeare can't have meant it. So people will do things like that. They'll say, oh, I know it says this, but what Shakespeare meant was this. So for a time, the big push around that was around, like I say, a sense that good people should come out well in the end and we should have a moral ending and a moral story. Whereas in fact, quite a lot of Shakespeare's tragedies are quite morally devastating and quite morally blank. Um, so I think that's something very interesting. You see people really care about what Shakespeare thinks and, and think it's important for morality that good guys come out on top. Maybe the place you see this most today, though, is around gender. So some of Shakespeare's plays have uh, female characters who are very kind of strikingly intelligent and in control of their situation and often are portrayed as being the kind of better half compared to men who can quite often be they're quite thoughtless, quite changeable, um, kind of chasing after different women or, or not seeing what's right in front of their face. And so you can read quite a kind of feminist message into Shakespeare, particularly relative to his time. And you can feel Shakespeare kind of writing against the grain of an assumption that it'd be women who are stupid or unfaithful um, or uh, kind of foolish. And that certainly would have been the presumption for some other writers and some other people. And Shakespeare's characters seem to push against that. So people say, ah, Shakespeare was a feminist. Shakespeare agrees with my modern sense of gender um, and that he's kind of lifting women up and kind of humbling men. But as soon as you say that, you then come across other characters and other plays which seem to show the opposite. And those can be very difficult and confusing for a modern uh, production to put on. So, for example, the play The Taming of the Shrew is all about how a strong man tames this energetic young woman. So taming is, is something that you do to a wild animal, right, to make it less dangerous. Like a pet, like you're trying to domesticate it. Um, or even more extremely, and in a way that fits the play, people might talk about breaking in a horse. So disciplining a horse very harshly in a way that allows you to then ride it and be in control. And that is basically what happens within the play. There's a young woman who doesn't want to get married and who is absolutely fine in her independence and is very clever and is much cleverer than the men who are around her. And then this very strong man takes her off and kind of breaks her down. And it's very... Um, it's quite painful to watch and to see this character do it. But the conclusion of the play is her being happily married to him. And as a, someone putting on that play today, you have to fight really hard to say, I really want Shakespeare to agree with me. I want Shakespeare to um, be a feminist and to portray men and women in a certain way. But the text of the play is just pulling you away from that. And, and this, is a, this is not a tragedy. If, in what I've described, you might think, oh, this is a tragedy. No, this is a comedy. This is funny. You're meant to laugh at this play and enjoy it. Um, and that's something that's quite difficult for a, a modern audience to do. So I think that, I think, as I said, particularly around gender, you see how these days people want Shakespeare to be on their side. And some things in him seem to allow you to have a, a feminist narrative or portray something um, that shows men and women as equal or even challenges some of the arrogance of men. But on the other hand, if you're going to perform the whole of Shakespeare's repertoire, you come across these other plays and other characters that are much more difficult to fit into a modern sensibility. And maybe that reflects some of what we said, that parts of Shakespeare performed very often and parts of Shakespeare performed much less. And perhaps people like to pick and choose the bits of Shakespeare that agree with them, that show the kind of the view that they're trying to get across, particularly because if Shakespeare agrees with you, well, you've got to be right. Um, and, if Shakespeare, and it's very important for people emotionally to show that Shakespeare was on their side, which is so interesting because we know very little about Shakespeare as a person. We know some things, 
but in terms of Shakespeare's own morality or beliefs or, um, you know, his his own attitude towards men or towards women, we know very little. And people still have a great desire to have Shakespeare as a kind of moral backing behind them, even though we don't know much about him. And if you looked at his plays, it's very hard to detect what he really thinks. And he seems to kind of throw out all of these different ideas and never quite land in any one place. Um, which is why I, like, I think this is still a common thing to keep digging in Shakespeare to try and find where does he agree with me? Where can I say, ah, oh, Shakespeare is, is on my side and is, I'm able to show my story through this Shakespeare play. I guess um, this is linking to something that we said at, uh, at, this, at the top of the podcast um, about Shakespeare often kind of thinking two things at once and having an ability to see both sides of a question which is that, you know, not only have views changed over the last 450 years, 400 years, but also also Shakespeare's views are not really very coherent in some ways. It's really hard to say this is a really definitive Shakespeare point of view. And I guess even the fact that we look for points of view shows that he was writing about politics, he was writing about gender politics. He was writing about um, all sorts of things where you can have a point of view. If he was, say, just writing comedies, maybe we wouldn't be searching so much for, you know, what does Shakespeare really think? And I guess the other thing that this links to um, is the suggestion that's been put forward that Shakespeare actually was uh, somebody else, that actually Shakespeare wasn't the author uh, of all of these plays, but he, he, they used his name when they started publishing, and that actually Shakespeare was a different writer who was around at the time, or um, th there are a number of sort of what might be called conspiracy theories about about Shakespeare and the fact that Shakespeare's name is on all of these plays when we know hardly anything about who he really was. What are your thoughts about those two issues? Yes, no, it is. Um, I think you're right that some of what's happening here is that Shakespeare is almost playing with us and um, is trying to portray all these different things at once. Um, and uh, that, some of that is perhaps a survival technique. So in times of political instability, um, trying to stay within the favour of the court and favour of the king or the queen, but also not get in too much trouble um, was a difficult thing to do. And something Shakespeare managed um, for the most part. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly might explain a bit of his kind of uh, almost double handedness that you're never quite sure um, where he's coming through. Um, what was your second question? Sorry, I've forgotten that one. My second question is about did Shakespeare really exist? Yes, yeah, sorry, conspiracy theories. They, um, yes, yeah, so I think they're interesting. They're normally quite good for say, an academic or someone trying to write something that's a bit avant-garde and different to suggest that Shakespeare wasn't who he says he was. Um, and I, I think to be that the one, I think generally as an idea, uh, I suspect it's a dead end. Like I'd be very surprised if it wasn't actually Shakespeare that wrote it. Um, and it was some other character. Maybe linking back to that double-handedness that there isn't, there's perhaps less of an obvious motive. So for, if he was writing plays that were, for example, really challenging um, the queen or the king at the time, I could see why someone might have a cover story or, or say someone might write the plays and then get someone else to publish it under a different name. But I think because of that double-handedness and the kind of political care that Shakespeare seems to show, I don't really see their motive that would sit behind um, that kind of uh, pseudonym and kind of ghost writing that you've described. I think maybe the thing that is more accurate is that we, with a quite a modern sense of authorship, uh, think of these plays as all written by Shakespeare and you know, with a singular author um, and almost like a dead text. I think probably is more realistic that these Shakespeare's were co-written and no doubt that Shakespeare was the kind of main writer, um, but also he had quite a set group of people he was performing these plays with. They would practice these plays, they'd perform them differently and you can see in different editions and different copies of the Shakespeare text variants and changes that creep in and, and you can kind of track and I think that partly points towards 
people printing them wrongly, but also probably points towards these being quite live documents. And actually, um, now we have more of a sense of a set text of, well, that's the Shakespeare and that's what we're going to perform. But you could imagine at the time with this tiny knit group of actors all working together and Shakespeare's written this play, that if they performed this play over a month, that they each night probably would be slightly different. And that wouldn't be about the actors challenging Shakespeare, but probably part of this creative process of them writing these plays together. Um, so I think there's maybe more be more interesting to think about how the particularly famous actors of the time and the people that Shakespeare is working with, how they influenced what he wrote. I think it's probably something more interesting to pursue than trying to uh, guess which other historical character might have been Shakespeare. Um, perhaps not least because it's very hard to determine. There's not the evidence that uh, points towards it solidly. So people end up having to chase little tiny scraps of things to say, oh, maybe he was this person or that person. I think that's not very fruitful. But yeah, looking at the actors, I think would be very interesting. To use a Shakespeare phrase, it's a wild goose chase. It's a chase after something <laughs> that doesn't really exist. Um, so, uh, wow, we've, we've, um, we've kind of ended up where we started. Um, and I think hopefully in this podcast, um, our listeners have been able to get some idea of, uh, of Shakespeare's life and what, uh, what the different sides of Shakespeare are and how Shakespeare is thought about today. Um, if our listeners want to go forward and to engage with Shakespeare more, there are lots of different ways to do that. What would you recommend? Mm, I think it is uh, perhaps hard to recommend one course of action. There's a lot of Shakespeare to get your, your arms around and think about. Um, if you do have the opportunity to go and see a Shakespeare play performed, um, I would encourage you to do that. I think particularly looking for um, performances in the original language and um, with probably more of that scaled back performance that we described before. So not a kind of a, a director trying to be clever and think of new ways to portray Shakespeare, trying to find a performance that is very simple um, and kind of uh, clear will help you appreciate what Shakespeare is doing the most. That would be my recommendation for seeing it performed. Perhaps particularly um, for those comedies that we talked about, where actually, if you read the text, you won't find it that funny. But if you see it performed by a good actor, you'll see, start to laugh and you'll be engaged. I would also encourage you to uh, read the plays. You can get lots of different editions printed um, and often they'll come with very helpful notes and footnotes. So as, if you're wanting to not only experience Shakespeare, but really understand Shakespeare, I'd probably encourage you to also try and find copies of the plays which give you some footnotes and some guidance about what he's meaning and what certain words mean. Um, but those are very commonly available. Um, so yeah, I think those would be perhaps two places to start. I mean, also in terms of just sheer accessibility and, and perhaps the easiest way to get into Shakespeare might be looking back to his poetry. So we've talked a lot about his plays. We haven't talked about his sonnets. His sonnets are obviously not very long, um, there's quite a lot of different sonnets you could get into. Some of them are quite famous. You'll recognize perhaps uh, some of their starting lines and um, they're very beautiful. And perhaps, yes, if you were going to just dip your toe into Shakespeare, um, perhaps starting with a couple of sonnets would be a good way. And are there any particular film versions that you might recommend? Oh, you ask a good question. Um, there are many films that are made. Um, the very recent one, which I actually haven't seen, but would quite like to see, um, was of Henry V, um, which I thought looked really interesting. Um, so um, that would be uh, an interesting one to watch. Um, there are several kind of older versions. Um, so Kenneth Branagh has produced lots of films of different Shakespeare plays. Um, they're not for everyone's taste. Um, and he's the sort of person who likes to cast himself as an important character. If you can bear with that, um, I think the good thing about them is they do uh, you know, try and stick to the scripts, as it were. So a bit more like those kind of paired back um, live performances that I talked about. They're not trying to do something too clever. Um, so those might also be films that are worth looking back to. 
out of the ones that you mentioned of Kenneth Branagh, there are two that I know, which is there's the version of Hamlet from 1996 where he plays Hamlet. Of course he does. Um, and, and that was um, set in a sort of, I'd like to say a sort of late 19th century um, uh, setting. So with not with the costumes and sets, of the um, Stuart period when it was written, the early 1600s, but sort of different uh, setting. Um, and then there's also an Othello that he uh, uh, directed and starred in from, I would say, perhaps slightly later than that. I don't know the exact year, um, which I think is in sort of period costume and uh, period set. So the, um, the kind of uh, settings and, and clothes that you'd expect from the 15 or 1600s. And one thing I'd say if you're going to watch those, it's a really good idea to try and find a version with subtitles in English. And that's something that I've recommended on this podcast before, which is that it's really helpful to see the words, especially when you're dealing with Shakespeare, which is not the kind of English that we speak uh, on an everyday, in an everyday way. I think that is something that's worth saying is that... Um, you know, there are so many ways to get into English literature and it's something that a lot of people are interested in if they're interested in learning the spoken language. Shakespeare is, um, like we said, it's kind of at the pinnacle of English literature in the way that we think about it. And it's also one of the most difficult. Um, so in a sense, um, I think that... that uh, that there are real challenges in reading Shakespeare because it's not the language that you would use if you went on a weekend trip to London or to Glasgow or Edinburgh, whatever. Um, so, um, so that's one challenge. And I think it's just really helpful to see it and to have the text in front of you so that you can, uh, so that you can read it as well as hearing it. That would be my suggestion. Um, I have one other question for you, Alex, which is, could you say a little bit about your experience with Shakespeare and how you've thought about it when you first engaged with it and how your opinions might have changed about Shakespeare over the years? Mm, that's so interesting. So I, um, like every other English student, I studied Shakespeare at GCSE um, I have uh, performed in one Shakespeare play. I was um, Don Pedro, he's a character in Much Ado About Nothing. Um, I tried very hard to make him a more important character than he really is. Um, but hey, that was, um, I enjoyed that. Um, as Ben said, I went on to study uh, English literature at university and did a whole um, course on Shakespeare. Um, and I think, uh, you asked in terms of how my, my views on Shakespeare changed. Um, I think probably I, uh, I probably went on some of the journey that I think some other people do, which is that the tragedies are where you, you might start, which is quite funny because they're quite difficult and kind of chewy and, and lots to think about. And I think it's easy to have the opinion that the tragedies, like I said, are the, the kind of top and then the comedies and then the histories at the bottom. I actually found the more I studied, um, first I started to really enjoy the comedies and then finally I started to really enjoy the histories and then perhaps last of all um, and probably where I finally landed is to appreciate the tragic comedies, these plays which don't quite fit into these different categories as neatly. Um, and actually I look now and I think I, you know, I enjoy the tragedies, um, I won't malign them or say they're not very good, they are very good. But actually, I think I do enjoy those tragic comedies the best. Um, I think because of that complexity that you have in them. And, and you kind of know once you've seen scene one of any given tragedy, probably where it's going. And it's probably going to be very violent and the characters are going to die. And it's going to be very sad for everyone involved. Whereas I think within the tragic comedies or even some of those darker comedy plays, you've got a genuine uncertainty um, that you're trying to engage with. So I think that's maybe some of my journey that I've ended up appreciating those very much, but also those history plays, which we talked about at the start as being famous in Shakespeare's own time, but perhaps less well known now. 
Um, and I think, again, they're perhaps, yeah, often overlooked. And I think, honestly, are probably not as good as plays, but are certainly a very interesting way for getting a good sense of um, how the English think about their own history. So I think if you wanted to think about England's position itself, how it views itself compared to France or compared to um, uh, you know, different periods of its own history, um, I've also really enjoyed studying those. Um, so perhaps it's like I was saying that there's an enjoyment you can have at first with Shakespeare, but also lots more you can dig into. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to us today about Shakespeare. It's been such a pleasure to be able to mine your endless knowledge and experience of these plays. Uh, it's been really fun. It's nice for me, having studied this a few years ago, to have to talk and think about it again. And we're going to try and get you back on the podcast very soon, if you have the time, So uh, to talk about some other kinds of things as well. If we're able to, we'll, we'll, we'll get you back. That'd be great. That's it for Intermediate English this week. We hope that you've come away with some interesting perspectives on an author who plays a really central role in English literature. Remember to follow the podcast, subscribe, write us a review, rate us five stars, and tell all your friends about the podcast. You can also send us an email at intermediatepods at gmail.com. So that's all from me. See you next time.